We are so glad you joined us today on our podcast. We would love to continue to connect with you throughout the week. And to do that, you can check us out at substancechurch.com or on social media by searching at SubstanceMN or Substance Church. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the message. What is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at downtown. West Side, Monterey, Mexico. We love all of our campuses. And I also want to welcome all of the churches who are joining us for our Pharisectomy series. It's actually based on a book I, I wrote a little over 10 years ago. We're, we're getting ready to release the 10th anniversary edition of a, a comedy spiritual growth book called Pharisectomy How to Remove Your Inner Pharisee and Other Religiously Transmitted Diseases. And uh, if you're new to this whole thing, this whole church, hey, we really believe that church, you can smile in church. We really believe in the joy of the Lord. And so I, I want to, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. If, if, again, if we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Peter Haas, and uh, uh, we, we have a lot of campuses around Minneapolis, but really our dream is wherever you do church is we want you to experience just more of God, more of his joy. And and, and so I'm going to get really practical today because I want to actually teach you how to win over the stressful people in your life. Come on, does anybody have stressful family members or stressful coworkers? Some of you are like, I am sitting next to them right now. Okay, don't, don't get eye contact with them. Just look up here, okay? Just look straight up here, okay? Then it'll get awkward if you do, okay? Here's the good news, okay? What I'm about to teach you has the ability to undermine the tension in that relationship, and even more, it'll actually increase the willingness of those around you to truly listen and hear your heart, okay? So I'm just, I'm telling you what I'm about, if you can apply what I'm about to share with you, this can change your marriage, this can change your politics, this can change your parenting, this can change your workplace tension, but I'm going to warn you in advance, it's kind of counterintuitive because it's exactly different than the way that the world generally attempts to influence people. And ultimately, I'm teaching you this not only to change your influence, but also to help explain to you exactly how God wants to influence us. In other words, you're actually going to understand maybe even the, the good news of the gospel for the first time ever. And we're going to, to do this, we're going to just quickly read a psalm out of Psalm 126. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there? If you don't, I'll have it up on my fancy schmancy screen. Psalm 126, verse 1, just to give you a little context first off, okay? This, this is all about, there was, a, there was a prophetic word for God's people, hey, if you don't obey me, if you don't understand the way that I want you to influence the world, you're going to lose your influence. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, God said, you're going to be taken captive for a, a temporary period of time by Babylon. And then after that period of time, I'm going to give you a second chance. And so, of course, they got their second chance. They got to go back to Jerusalem. And the Bible says this, when the Lord brought back the captives, in other words, believers, back to Zion, to Jerusalem, we were like men who dreamed. It was like a dream come true. Like God gave us a second chance. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then, everybody say then. Then it was said among the nations, 
The Lord has done great things for them. The nations, in other words, non-believers, people outside of the church, the people outside of the church were saying, wow, the Lord has done great things for them. Their lives are blessed. There's something different. There's favor on that group of people. In other words, the, 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 the nations around God's people are going to say, God is good. Why? Because they were laughing. Their mouths were filled with laughter. Okay, now I, I know I'm just, I, I'm, I'm meditating on this in front of you because I, I want to see, I want you guys to see a cause and effect that you may never have seen before having read this, okay? The nations saw that God was good because God's people were laughing. The message of grace went further among the nations because of laughter. Now, in previous weeks, we learned that joy is one of the preeminent attributes of a believer. It's actually a sign that you're in sync with the Holy Spirit. If you're in sync with the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22 says that you will naturally have joy and the people around you will see it and feel it. Okay, it's also one of the descriptors of what the early church looked like, Acts 2.46. They were filled with joy, and joyful hearts and, and thanksgiving. The Bible teaches that even difficult sacrifices, Matthew 13.44, even getting sin out of our lives will actually be a joy-filled process if we're doing it the way God wants us to do it. Now, there's a million ways to get sin out of your life that are not joyful, that are obligatory, that are filled with guilt, filled with shame, but the Bible says it's gonna be joy-filled if you're actually doing it right, if you understand how God actually created Christianity to work. And, and let's be honest, a lot of us grew up with forms of Christianity that were anything but joyful, right? Instead of calling it good news, it was just kind of, news. You know what I'm saying? Nobody would have called it good because it's like, gosh, I, you know, some of us, we went to churches and we're like, I don't even want to go here, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, and I get it, okay? So in case you're wondering kind of why substance does things the way it does is because we want to be able to exemplify good news, joy in everything we're doing. And, and get this, a while back, I found a scientific-based study on church health. There was this one of the largest studies on church health ever done in, in countries all over the world, they found that laughter is actually a statistical predictor of church health and church growth. And they actually created a metric, a measurement that they can give your church to measure whether or not you have this particular predictor of church growth and church health, a laughter index, okay? They found that very rarely will churches grow unless they score high on this laughter index, and it was kind of an interesting, weird correlator with health. And they found that even if a church does grow without a high laughter index, that they won't grow healthily and that eventually they're gonna shrink back down again. Isn't that crazy? I mean, isn't that bizarre that, that laughter correlates with church health and church growth? Again, laughter is a symbol that we're in sync with God, that we love one another, and so guess what? The same organization discovered, that discovered this uh, connection, I, I thought, let's have them evaluate substance. And so we paid for them to come in, survey our church members. Uh, they, they literally got a large statist uh, statistical sampling out of our church, and then they were going to compare it to tens of thousands of other churches globally and then give us kind of a report card. And guess what you guys scored? An F. No, you didn't fail. You Actually, you were, you were A+. plus. Get this. You scored in the 98th percentile. That means only 2% of churches laughed more than you guys. 
And I thought, wow, that's like really unique. I mean, it's, I, you know, I, I, to be honest, I was like, is that really true? Did you guys lie on your laughter scores? I'll give you something to laugh about, right? It's like what my mom would say to me when I, no, she, she, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'll threaten you with laughter. Oh, you really want to laugh? I'll give you something to cry about. No, anyway, I, I just, I, why? Why is joy so critical for spiritual health? Here's why. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our what? Strength. Joy is actually a motivator. If you think about it, okay, guess what else is a motivator? Shame and guilt. You can guilt someone into change. It is a motivator. Guilt is a form of strength. The problem is, is it's an inferior form of strength. It's like running your car on the wrong kind of gas your engine is not gonna last long. And those of you who grew up with, with shame-driven Christianity, guilt-driven Christianity, it didn't last long for you. Eventually you quit on it or you're like, ah. Or you, for a lot of people, they're just like, I'm not good at being a Christian. I don't think I like, the, I don't even know if this is good news, right? Well, it's because it's not. Guilt-driven Christianity is actually bad news. And it's, like, it's the very thing that the Pharisees became advocates of and yet, the Bible says that, that God wants to drive us with joy. It's actually the catalyst. And if you don't have it, it's gonna become very hard to serve God without it. And because here's the truth. If you don't motivate yourself with joy, you're not gonna motivate anybody else with joy either. If you motivate yourself with guilt, guess what you're gonna motivate other people with? Guilt. Guilt trips, right? And some of you are like, but I'm really good at guilt trips, right? My guilt trips are so good, it's like a vacation. I don't know, you might wanna ask your family about that first, okay? I'm just saying, yeah, guilt is a motivator, but it's not the biblical one, okay? The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, Titus 2 says. So ultimately, it's, it's grace and it's joy. And, and so another kind of interesting study on, on persuasion and life change that I thought really confirms what I'm sharing. Now, once you get to know me, I'm kind of a research nerd. But I, I love it when science proves what the scripture has been saying all along. So the research on, on persuasion, there was a study done on why are some people better salesmen than others? Why are some people more persuasive than other people? What are they doing differently that, that other people who are not so persuasive um, not good at? Well, like what are the factors that are, are affecting it? Okay, so get this, research shows that when you have an extended conversation with someone that's, that's positive at all, okay? An extended conversation, so you and I are having a conversation, let's say it's going on about 10 minutes. Physiologists and, and different scientists have figured out that, that when you're having a good conversation with someone that your breathing and your heart rate actually syncs up with them. Okay, so how many breaths per minute you take will actually synchronize with the person you're around within a matter of about 10 minutes, and the same thing will, tr will become true with your heartbeat. Your heart will, will beat at the exact beats per minute of the person you're sitting next to. Suddenly that stranger next to you today, it's like awkward. You're like, wow, your body is affecting my body and vice versa, okay? It just makes you kind of think about it a little bit, right? How? How does our, how does our bodies affect each other like that? It's, so physiologists will call it entrainment somehow our bodies communicate with those around us when we're having a good conversation, and your breath and your heart rate will sync up with them. And again, it's called entrainment. Isn't the body bizarre and amazing? Okay, there's things that we don't even, I, 
We haven't even begun to understand about how humans are designed to interact with one another. But here's where things get interesting when it comes to persuasion, teachability, and influence. The odds of persuading a person to do something before entrainment is slim and none. Unless, of course, you use coercion or threats. Okay, so think about this. The odds of selling somebody something before entrainment has occurred is very, very, very low, which is why like in sales, they always call it rapport, you know, like the salesman at the dealership or trying to sell you a refrigerator or whatever, you know, like you always try to have rapport. So what do you do for a living? You know, let's talk a little bit. Really, if you think about it, that is kind of a subconscious tactic to, hey, let's get entrainment, let's get rapport, Let's get our bodies in sync so that way I can actually have a conversation. It's almost like the, 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 the physiological description of what trust looks like before influence and persuasion happens, okay? Now, I know this is kind of nerdy and deep, but just stick with me for a second, okay? Because here's where things get interesting, okay? Did you know that getting people to sing worship songs is one of the top behavior that causes entrainment? Think about that. Getting people to sing worship songs together is one of the quicker ways to get heart rates in sync with one another. Now, you can actually get just any group of people singing songs together will create entrainment over time. But it, it, in fact, the quickest way to create entrainment between two people is, get this, laughter. Laughter. It is a statistical fact that funny people can actually influence and sell things more than non-funny people, okay? And some of you are like, well, I've got no chance then. There's no hope for me, right? Now, listen, just, you're, you're, you're overthinking of it because it's not like, oh, can I just say a little quip and get you to laugh? I think anybody can exude the joy of the Lord. Did you know that? Anybody can have hope and joy flooding out of their lives. Now, just why would our bodies respond this way? Let's just kind of walk down this rabbit hole a little bit. Let's think about this. Why would our bodies respond this way? Why would God actually design us to not be teachable until entrainment has occurred? Why would that happen? Well, I think that all of us, since sin has entered the world, we all have a natural skepticism towards other human beings because we know that sin natures in other people will cause other people to maybe treat us in ways that are not in our best interest, but in their best interest. We know that in a sinful world that not everybody is trying to help you, right? And so there's a natural skepticism. For example, in the world, we're given constant advertisements by people who want to sell us more things, and they say, oh, you need this, 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 you need this. And we have thousands of advertisements per day that are you know, claiming to be in our self-interest, but actually we know what, it's in their self-interest. They wanna make money off of us. They want us to be consumers. The same thing with political ads. Oh, you're not actually trying to help me, you just want my vote so that you can have power. You wanna be able to maintain power. It's not like actually in my self-interest to do what you say, but you know what I'm saying. It, we're constantly be giving, being given these types of messages I think, in my opinion, that as a survival instinct, human beings have to have a healthy wall of skepticism because everyone has a half-truth and a testimonial, which is why most people, get this, most people will reject truth claim coming from someone unless they trust them. If you don't have trust 
with a person, you're, you're less likely to receive any influence from that person, okay? Just think about it like this, okay? Right now, we're in a uh, political season. All those political ads on TV, right? And some of them are so ominous, aren't they? And it's like they're nonstop. Candidate Peter Haas eats babies. (laughs) He once forced a baby deer to cross the interstate. Peter is too extreme from Minnesota, right? Like, now let's, let's just be honest, okay? Have those commercials, do they really persuade people? Like, oh, I didn't know that about Peter. He eats babies. I didn't know that he had that philosophy of deer. I mean, that, like, are we really going to have a reasonable conversation about baby deer right now? Probably not. You know what I'm saying? And here's why, okay? When pain and politics are high, teachability is low. It is a fundamental principle of human nature. When pain and politics are high, teachability is low. It is a natural defense tactic, which is why it's so important that we know how to steward our influence. When is a time for influence? When is, a t- when, when is cultural teachability high? When is it low? When is what I say actually going to bear fruit? When is it just going to actually make, you know, making a point and making a, a difference is a totally different thing. A lot of times, I actually think we want to share things with people not because we actually love them or want to influence them, but because it makes us feel good. It's like catharsis. I feel better about myself. Really, what it is is it's self-righteousness. I want to feel better about myself by sharing things, but I'm not really actually trying to persuade anyone. I'm not actually trying to convert anyone. Really, I think a lot of times, if we were honest, we're actually trying to antagonize people. As the reformer once said, John Knox, he said, you cannot antagonize and influence at the same time. At some point, you're gonna do one or the other. At some point, we're, we're either trying to convert people or we're either transforming pain, or, but most of the time, we're transmitting it if we're not strategic about how we think about how we do these types of things. Ironically, I actually think many people lose their influence in seasons like this. And I, I just, as an example of this, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I had this weird idea that if a person wanted free money, they just go to the bank, okay? And part of it is, I vividly remember, you know, like in the, my, my parents would take us in the car through the drive-thru, uh, the, the bank teller, and then the little suction tubes would go up and down. You gotta admit, suction tubes are still cool. I don't care who you are. It, it was like Star Trek, right? And at this particular bank, they went through the ground, and so it looked like it just like dematerialized, and then all of a sudden, and they just like pull it out. It was like the coolest thing. I could have played with that all day. I still could. They're just so cool. But this is what the coolest part was. You just drove up to the bank and you said, give me money. And boom, the tube would just come and it gave you money. It was the coolest thing ever. And I remember one time my parents said, we can't afford that. And I'm like, nonsense. Just go to the bank. Free money. Now, a lot of people don't understand, what I didn't understand is that you actually had to put money in before you took money out, okay? That's how banks technically work. You gotta put money in before you take money out. A lot of adults still don't understand that work, how that works, right? Government doesn't understand how that works, right? So you gotta put money in. Money's gotta come from somewhere, right? I mean, you can't just like, there is no free money, okay? You gotta make deposits before you make withdrawals. Does that make sense? If you're gonna write a check, it is a withdrawal, you're taking money out. Now, in the olden days, young people, if you actually wrote a check you couldn't cash, excuse me, if you wrote a check you couldn't cash, you'd get an overdraft fine, or it was called 
bouncing a check, right? Insufficient funds, and then they would fine you a large amount of money so that you would never do it again. Now, you see, the reason why I'm explaining this is because I actually believe that hearts, people's lives operate the same way as bank accounts, okay? So it's called the emotional bank account because relationships need deposits before you get withdrawals. Now, what is a, a relational deposit? It would be like spending time with someone. It would be acts of love, acts of servanthood, listening, generosity in people's lives, sacrifice. Those are deposits into people's lives. And if you make deposits into people's lives, inevitably you can make a withdrawal, like a confrontation, saying, hey, what's going on in your life here? That doesn't seem healthy to me. Or it's setting new rules for your kids, raising boundaries with people, delivering hard truths with friends. You see, at some point or another, you're going to have to make a withdrawal, but if you make lots of deposits, it works great. But if you try to make a withdrawal without making a deposit, what happens? Again, you bounce a check. A person's going to be like, you try to confront someone without making any deposits, again, the person's generally going to freak out. Who are you to tell me that I shouldn't fill in the blank, right? They kind of freak out, right? And really what we, that's why the old saying goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know. You, if you have a lot of deposits in people's lives, it's amazing, you can challenge people on almost anything and they'll still respond well. You'll notice that the problem, the difference between rebellion and in a person who's receptive a lot of times is how many deposits do you have in the life of the person you're, you're speaking truth to. So for, a, uh, for example, a while back I had this one friend, he got confronted by his coworker, and you have to understand my friend is kind of a big dude and he can kind of inadvertently come off like a bully. He's extroverted, he's kind of a natural debater and I don't think he intends to come off like a bully but he can. And so his coworker confronted him on it in a really, really gruff way in front of a whole bunch of people and, and confronted my friend. And of course, a couple hours later, I was hanging out with that same friend and he comes up to my house and he goes, you'll never believe what my coworker did today. And he just started whining about his coworkers and what his coworker did. And he goes, can you believe he told me that I am a jerk? Who is he to tell me that I'm a jerk? And I'm like, bro, you are kind of a jerk. And he was like, what? Like, he wasn't expecting that, right? He, he thought I would be like, oh, that's so sad. You know, he was, which he was kind of looking to that from me just to comfort him, you know what I'm saying? Can I cook you a chicken pot pie? Whatever it is. He, sorry, that was a little weird. But I, I just, you know what I'm saying? Like, he was like, and I'm like, bro, you are kind of a jerk. I, and then I told him, I remember when I first met you, I was like, who the heck is this dude? And I just, I gave him a few examples and he goes, really, really? And then immediately he was like, he just melted right in front of me and he's like, Peter, would you, you're right. Would you help me stop that? Would you just help me not do that to my coworkers? And he melted right there in front of me. And then we ended up having a little prayer moment where I talked to him. I'm like, hey, just realize that a lot of people will interpret this kind of stuff like that, okay? And, and, and I, in that moment, I, I noticed something that two people Two different people can share the exact same truth with the exact same person and get totally different results. Let me say that again. Two people can share the exact same truth with the exact same person and get two totally different results. One person will create rebellion in an individual and another person 
will actually win them over. Why? Well, I think the difference was is that I had deposits in the emotional bank account of this person and his coworker did not. I had the credibility to confront him, but his coworker did not. Was his coworker right? Probably. That didn't mean he had, the, he had earned the right to share the truth. A lot of, we live in a culture that thinks like I am entitled to share my truth. It's my truth, okay? Listen, no, you have to earn the right to share truth with people. That's actually what the Bible teaches over and over again. And, and I'm gonna show you how you can earn the right, okay? It, you see, the truth was my friend was totally teachable. He just wasn't teachable to his coworker. And so the real question I wanna pose to you today is not do you have the truth, it's have you earned the right to share the truth through sacrificial love? Truth statements are cheap. Everyone's got words. What's different is actions, okay? Making a point and making a difference are totally different. It ma making a point and making, a lot of times we're making points while making enemies when we don't have to do that, right? So this is true on a city level. Most people, non-believers in Minneapolis and Minnesota or wherever you live, they're teachable to someone. The question is, are they teachable to you? And the reason why that is so important is because, I, I know this is kind of an obvious truth, but I think a lot of times we, we, we use, like a lot of, I've heard Christians say, oh, the gospel is offensive. It's supposed to offend people. Well, okay, yeah, but I think a lot of times we use that statement in, from those, those elements in scripture. The only people that were rejecting Jesus were Pharisees, religiously transmitted diseases. People that, people that uh, were so self-righteous, they couldn't comprehend what Jesus was doing. And because he didn't look the way that they expected him to, all of a sudden, they, re they rejected him. Okay, so th that's totally different. You see, at the end of the day, we don't need to cover up for our lazy love by saying dumb statements like the gospel is offensive. No, you're offensive and you're using the gospel incorrectly. Okay? And I wanna teach you how to use it correctly. And really, if you think about it, the, the, the checkbook theory, the emotional bank account that I just explained to you, deposits and withdrawals, is exactly how the gospel is intended to work. And believe it or not, God uses the exact same tactic on you and me. Let me prove it to you, okay? There's a million scriptures that actually illustrate the emotional bank account. First John 4, 19 says, we love, why? Because, why? He first loved us. His love entered into our lives it unlocked us, it set us free, and now we're so overflowing, we spill it out onto other people. We love because he first loved us. That's why we say uh, the, the, the Bible is not a list of requirements, it's a list of results after experiencing his love, right? Or Matthew 10, 8, freely as you have received, Jesus said, freely give. In other words, you're, you're just overflowing onto other people from the things that are, you know, from God through back, God back to God are all things, Romans 11 teaches, right? Or, or Romans 2, 4, boy, I, you, I just never get enough of sharing this scripture. God's kindness is what leads to repentance, the Bible says. It doesn't say truth is what leads people to repentance. Now, truth will keep you in repentance, but actually what unlocks repentance Kindness. If people aren't getting an experience with God's kindness, they're actually incapable of repenting. Unfortunately, a lot of us think it's truth that leads people to repentance. Actually, the Bible teaches Romans 7, truth leads to rebellion. You give someone truth without the spirit of the life-giving nature of God, all it can do is create rebellion. But if you give them, if, if, you, if they understand there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, 
in Christ Jesus will set you free. It's the kindness. We need to be giving people an encounter with God's kindness. In fact, actually, any repentance that is not a response to God's kindness is actually false repentance. It's actually unbiblical repentance. You can't teach someone into repentance. You can show them kindness. You can't guilt someone into repentance, or it'll be a false repentance, a temporary repentance. You can't even logically persuade people into repentance. At the end of the day, if it, we're not giving people kindness, it, then it, the deposit of love that unlocks teachability, then listen, whatever repentance they demonstrate is gonna be temporary. And they're eventually gonna be like, yeah, I, maybe I'm just not good at being a Christian. No, you never experienced the good news. You see, I, I, I'm just, I'm giving you, so whenever I feel stressed with someone, or whenever I need to lead someone through a tough conversation, I always start with this. How can I make practical deposits of love into that person so that I can unlock their ability to even hear what I'm about to say? As another example of this, I, I, my, my wife and I were mentoring this young college student who I'm gonna name John. Their real name was Josh, but I'm gonna call them John. I couldn't resist, it's a funny joke, you gotta admit, okay? No, we're just gonna call this person John. John came to us with kind of a dilemma that, that I think you might uh, relate to, okay? He, he was actually in a Christian group, he was serving on a Christian ministry team at, at a particular organization outside of our church, and, and uh, there was this other dude on his ministry team that was being really insecure and passive aggressive, okay? Like, for example, this, this other guy, technically his co-leader, um, would do things like have meetings without inviting John. And he'd be like, I'm technically in charge of the ministry, and yet he's like subversively doing meetings and making decisions without me there. And it's just getting to the point where it's almost weird, or, or like he'll throw parties and purposefully not invite me, even though, you know, uh, uh, like, why? Why are, you do, why are you always kind of pushing me out? And he would kind of talk about John behind his back and just subtle stuff as if somehow John was a threat to him. And so the tension was getting to this point where the entire team is saying, you know, this is really weird and awkward. Like, John, what, is there something going on between you and, and the co-leader? And, and, and he finally came to me and he's like, he's like, Peter, what do I do in this situation? Like, how do I confront this guy on his passive aggression? I mean, He's already proven to be very, very insecure, and so, you know, is it possible if I confront them, will the confrontation make it worse? And of course, you know, I, I listen to him, and I'm like, well, I mean, truth be told, yeah. I mean, sometimes confrontation can make things, um, it, it can backfire if you don't do it right, okay? Because confrontation can be a sledgehammer, but it can also be a scalpel, and it can also be very, very carefully done. And so I'm like, well, let me give you some tips on confrontation. First off, never do it publicly, always do it privately. In other words, do it in a way that they can save face. Uh, n number two, don't, don't involve others unless it's like a neutral third party. Like don't be going around with other coworkers and friends saying, oh, did you hear about me and so-and-so, we're having problems. Okay, that's called gossip and triangulating. That usually makes things worse. And, and, um, and, and I, I finally, you know what, I, I stopped myself and I'm like, you know what, John? Have you tried a prayer strategy yet? And most people don't like it when I say prayer strategy because they already know in their heads, they're like, oh, I don't think prayer works. And so they're always like, they kind of roll their eyes like, oh, you need me to jump through a few spiritual hoops first? Okay, prayer strategy. And I'm like, no, for real. Like, have you tried a real prayer strategy? And he's like, no, I mean, no, not really. And I'm like, how about, how about we do this? You and me are gonna pray for 10 minutes a day just for this person 
and we're just gonna watch what God does, okay? Just for the next two weeks, you and I will get together after two weeks, we're gonna pray over this, and let's just see what God does just through prayer. You and me praying for 10 minutes a day, we're gonna set our alarms, we're gonna do it at the same time, we're gonna, and he's like, okay, okay, I'll try it, I'm, I'm desperate, and he's like, okay, let's do it. So we prayed, okay, get this. By day three, John spontaneously ran into this dude, and the dude came up to him and it was like, John, weirdest thing happened. Like, literally weirdest thing. Last night I had a dream in which I was mistreating you and I was doing all sorts of weird stuff, misjudging you and, and uh, kind of, you know, backbiting and things like that. And in the dream, all of it was true and I just felt so guilty. And John was like, wow, what a weird dream. <laughs> Like, you know, thinking that's really awkward because you are actually doing all those things. And, 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 and then John was like, I'm so sorry if my dream self was rude in the dream. Or I, like, I love it when you're apologizing for your dream self. But, and he goes, no, honestly, in the dream, I, he goes, I felt so weird. I felt awkward because I was the guilty one. And I just felt like, oh, I, I, I need to like change the way I'm living. And, and John was like, wow, what a weird dream. You know, like it was kind of an awkward conversation. But it clearly messed with this dude enough where he called up John and just said, hey, let's do coffee. I just, I just want to take our relationship to the next level. And they ended up having a heart-to-heart -heart that very week that has not only transformed their relationship, but now they're actually close friends to this day. Close friends to this day. And when I heard that, I wonder how many relationships we have screwed up in our lives simply because we did not invite the Holy Spirit into it early on. And as a result, it backfired. We used a form of influence that was carnal. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, it's not like the world does it. We don't use it through backbiting, finger pointing, all of these types of things. We use different types of weapons. We use love. We use turning the other cheek. We use joy. We use prayer. And, and so here's what I want to do. I want to end on a practical note by giving you three quick questions that I really believe will dramatically increase your influence and transform some of those awkward relationships. So if, you, if, you, if it's your spouse, your coworkers, your kids, just ask these questions. Just take this afternoon and journal these things. Who are you feeling stressed with right now? Just a couple of you are like, the whole world. Okay, just start with one or two particular people, okay? Just start somewhere. And then number two, what are some practical ways you could make deposits of love into their lives? In other words, you're gonna apply the emotional bank account. You're gonna make deposits of sacrifice into their lives. And then the third one is kind of an interesting question. Are these deposits comprehensible or comprehensible to them? Do they understand that what you're doing is a blessing to them? So for example, don't buy your wife flowers if really what she wants is a date. You know what I'm saying? In other words, is it comprehensible to them? Some of, you know, again, we, we have to understand love languages. How are they perceiving it? Like, I, I remember talking to one guy who's like, you know, I provide a roof over my kid's head, okay? That, which is more than my dad did for me. They just need to understand. I'm loving on them all day long, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, okay, that's true. That's true. You provide, you know, a roof over your kid's head. But, you know, it... it it, I, I hear the same thing from bosses, right? Just because, or from, from people at their workplaces, just because you work hard doesn't mean your boss is gonna be receptive to you because your kids and your bosses are gonna be like, uh, it's called doing your job? People are supposed to work hard, I'm paying you to work, okay? Or your kids are gonna be like, it's called being a parent, okay? It's, 
You're actually obeying the law? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In other words, no, don't, don't expect a blue ribbon for doing status quo, okay? And, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of times we assume we're putting money into a bank account, a deposit into people's lives, and maybe we are, but it's not understandable to them. It doesn't translate. It's kind of like you're trying to pay for your Starbucks in America using Mexican pesos, okay? It ain't gonna go well, right? Yeah, but Pastor Peter, these pesos, they have value. Why won't they accept my value? Because they just don't use Mexican pesos. You know, I know that's kind of obvious, but a lot of people, you're, you're, it's time to change your strategy and deposit it in a way that they can understand using their love language. And here's the cool part, okay? This little exercise I taught you, just those three questions, if you do them, not only will it unlock teachability in others, make them more receptive to you, it'll actually unlock illumination in us. In other words, God will speak to you more. Like, hear me out. Let me end with this, okay? Because sometimes... Sometimes we are the ones who are wrong. Some of you, that's a really scary thought. You're like, what? I'm always right. Yeah, I know. Sometimes, my friends, you are the dork. Okay, like, for, have you ever gotten into an argument and then you realize halfway through the argument, wow, I am really on the wrong side of this one, right? But we want to be judged for our intentions still. You know, like, my intentions were pure. Yeah, you're still wrong. Okay, yeah, but my intentions, I didn't intend to hurt you. Yeah, but you still did. I know, but I didn't intend to. Okay, great. I'll give you a point for good intentions. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, you know, have you ever been in that position? But it matters, right? I remember um, one day I was driving on the interstate and I kept coming upon these clueless drivers everywhere. Have you ever just, doesn't it feel like the whole world is just getting worse at driving every single day? And you have to understand, I pride myself on my driving self-awareness. I have the gift of awareness. I feel like I can just read everyone's mind, like I just, and I coach them too, right? I, I call everybody on the road by their car name. Okay, Mr. Corolla, yep, merge, yep, merge, yep, merge. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm constantly coaching everybody. Why? Because I'm gifted. And uh, I, I rarely talk on my cell phone when I drive. I never clog up the fast lane. I always park in the middle of the lines at the grocery store. And if I don't, oh, I'll get back into my car and rearrange it. Somebody appreciates that, right? In fact, whenever, I, whenever my wife is driving and she parks, she always sarcastically says, is this good enough for you? <laughs> See, but she realizes that I'm blessed with self-awareness. It's a hard burden to carry, right? But I, I just, so I'm driving and this dude has his blinker on. You know how like some people, they forget to turn their blinkers off and it's just clicking and clicking and I'm like, unbelievable. People are just so clueless. Well, then literally about a, a mile down the road, there's another person with their blinker on. And I'm like, what the heck, people? Learn how to drive. Does everybody need to retake their driver's test? And then all of a sudden I look down and guess what? I was the one with the blinker on and they were signaling me. I think a lot of times we get so arrogant about our self-awareness. We get arrogant about our theology, about our politics, about really everything. And, 
And as I look back on my life, I actually noticed that a lot of the people who irritated me most were ironically the very people God was sending to help me. But I couldn't receive it from them because of self-righteousness. And I, I'm just telling you, the reason I said those three questions earlier is because they actually force us into a position of humility and servanthood. And why, does, why is humility and servanthood so important? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You can be right and be devoid of grace and still be an enemy of God. That's really what the Pharisees were. They were theologically accurate and yet they were completely out of sync with God. I wonder how often we've embraced forms of Christianity that lack humility and servanthood and as a result, not only have we cut ourselves out from grace, we've cut out everyone else around us from the grace of God too and they feel it, which is why they kind of avoid us, which is why they mute us on Facebook, which is why they stopped listening to us after 2020, right? I think all of us need to return to a posture of humility. And so I just wanna end with this. Who are you feeling stressed with right now? Just close your eyes. Who are you feeling stressed with? Is it a, a spouse, a boss, an institution? I believe that the grace of God is gonna flow into some dying relationships today and is gonna give you wisdom and insight that you did not previously have. And that gentle, still, small voice of the Holy Spirit is gonna visit you with a strategy of joy and life and grace that is not only gonna change you, but is gonna change everyone around you. So Holy Spirit, just unlock us today. We just acknowledge that, Lord, no matter how many times we've repented, we need, we need to repent even more, and to do that, we just need to receive your kindness, your forgiveness. While we were still sinners, you died for us. And so I, we just acknowledge that today, that all of us are imperfect humans. All of us, no matter how right we are, still have wrong ways of thinking, and I pray that you'd help all of us to get in sync with you, that the world around us would not only just hear your truth, but they'd feel it first. Lord, start with us, and maybe you're new to this whole God thing. Let's just all repent together. Just say this after me. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me, renew me, and lead me, starting today for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. Man, with all that said, we're gonna have our campus pastors come on up here and tell us where we're gonna go next. Love you guys. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you would like to contribute to Substance financially, you can do so by visiting substancechurch.com slash giving and then select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening and be sure to check in next week for a new message.